Okay, good morning. Happy Thanksgiving. Glad to see you here at the 1030 a.m. service. Before we kick off our message today, I want to give a quick disclaimer that in our sermon today, we're going to be talking about issues of sexuality and transgenderism. If you've got young kids and you had no idea that was going to be the topic of conversation today, we have a wonderful Connect Kids program upstairs. Our, our crew has worked so hard at making sure that your kids are going to have an absolute blast. We actually had a family first-time guest that showed up last week. They had no clue what we were talking about, and they sat there awkwardly the entire hour thinking, oh boy, I wish he would have given me a heads up. So here's a heads up. Now it's on you, okay? Second thing I'd like to say, another quick caveat is that today's message is going to be a little bit different than messages that we typically do here on Sundays at Connect. And um, what we're going to be doing is I'm going to answer a lot of the questions that have been sent to me over the last few weeks, specifically as we've started this He Made Them series, but also questions that I've received on the um, subject of transgender people and ideologies and policies and all those different things um, over the years. And in particular, I want to focus on some of the things that are playing out maybe in um, like places of employment, schools, churches, even. I kind of want to talk through some of those questions that you guys have had. So everything we talk about today is something somebody emailed me about. Thank you for your emails. I do appreciate them. I'm going to get to as many of them as I possibly can today. So let's dive right in. I want to start with the most common question I've ever received on the subject of transgenderism. And it's a pretty straightforward one. Should Christians use the preferred names and pronouns of trans-identified people? Should Christians use preferred names and preferred pronouns? Maybe a a family member has recently announced that they have a new name and they want you to use the new name. Or your teacher, you went to university this semester and your teacher required you to provide your pronouns to them and the class. Perhaps you've seen people get in trouble or even canceled online for dead naming or misgendering people and you're like, whoa, I don't want to be the victim of that, right? Um, you, you might wonder if you're implicitly endorsing trans ideology or something like that, if your boss requires you to put your pronouns in your email signature. You're just like, I don't know, is this okay? Is it not okay? If you haven't faced this particular issue or question, you probably will at some point. It is something that many Christians have had to engage with, and I think we can do it in a way that is healthy, Christ-honoring, and even kind to other people. Now, for the sake of our discussion this morning, I'm going to avoid any sort of like um, political aspect to this, okay? Like, I won't get into compelled speech or competing charter rights or anything like that, although I have thoughts. We'll just ignore them. And instead, what I want to focus on is what does the scripture say? Theologically, biblically, would it be acceptable for a Christian to use uh, uh, change names or trans pronouns? Well, first off, names are easy, guys, okay? As a Christian, you can use the preferred name of anybody that they give you. If they say, hey, please call me this name, go for it. And you don't have to feel any anxiety over it because as we've talked about over the last several weeks, names are not inherently gendered. Our concept of names being a boy name or a girl name, a masculine name or a female name, that's all culturally conditioned. And frankly, it's not inherent. We could have decided differently. All right. I can give you another example in in addition to the ones I gave you a couple of weeks ago. Is the name Michael a boy name or a girl's name? Okay, now we would say a boy's name, but you know what? The truth is it's neither because names are not gendered. I just told you that. I gave you the answer before I even asked. (laughs) If you go to the scripture, do you know there are two people in the Bible that are named Michael? 
one of them's a male and one of them's a female, okay? So it's a name that could be used either way. And any name really is genderless. We've just chosen to normally associate them with one gender or another. And so listen, as a Christian, if if somebody, particularly if it's a family member, a loved one, a friend you went to high school with, something like that, and now they present with a new name and they say, I no longer want to be called that. I want to be called this. It can be hard to remember. You know, it's just that muscle memory of calling them by their birth name for so very long. It can be hard to remember to use the new name, but there's nothing wrong with using their new name. In fact, in the Bible, God changes people's names all the time. Are you with me? He's like, no, you're not a Jacob. You're an Israel. No, you're not a Sarah. You're a Sarah. Okay. God does it all the time. And so names themselves shouldn't cause us any issues. It is one area where as a Christian, we can just say, yes, if you want to be called by a different name, I'm quite happy to do so. Now, pronouns are a little trickier from a Christian perspective. Now, the first thing we've got to note here is that there are zero Bible verses that address pronouns. None. There's no verse in the Old Testament or the New Testament that says, if there is a male who wants to be called a she, here's what you should and should not do as a follower of Christ. It's not in there. And so what we have to do then is we have to look at some other general principles from the scripture. What does the scripture teach on other areas that might impact or influence this subject or any others? In fact, this is one of the the things that we have to do commonly as Christians because the Bible addresses so many different subjects and topics but there's an infinite number of subjects and topics. The Bible cannot address them all. And so instead we look at the principles that other scriptures teach and we decide what's the best path forward based on the principles that we see revealed in the Bible. So um, on one hand, you've got Christians. Well, let me back up. Let me say it this way. There are good Christians, faithful, God-fearing, Bible-believing Christians who disagree on this issue. Let me say it again. There are good Christians who believe it's okay to use trans pronouns. And there are good Bible-believing Christians who say, no, it's not acceptable. And so this is, um, and we'll talk more about this. This is what I think the Bible calls one of those disputable matters because it's not addressed directly. So instead we all have to look at some different scriptures and come to our own conclusions. All right. So rather than demonizing the other side or anything like that, let's just consider it from both perspectives and then ask the Holy Spirit what he might want us to do. So on the one hand, you've got Christians who say, listen, Using preferred pronouns is just like a basic uh, act of respect and dignity. It's it's hospitality. It's kindness. It is meeting somebody where they're at. It is like the bare minimum that a Christian can do. I'm not, you know, Christians on this side would say like, I'm not asking you to vote this way. I'm not asking you to endorse all of these other things. You can disagree with a trans ideology or identity and still use the pronouns as a basic form of respect. All right. And look, they would also say, this is kind of what Jesus did. He loved people right where they were at. He accepted them as they were. He built bridges instead of walls. And yes, eventually he pointed them towards the truth, but he led with grace. Dan, you even talked about that a few weeks ago. And, And that's very true. There are other scriptures that would indicate that it might be okay to use a transgender pronoun for somebody. Consider this. Romans chapter number 12, verse 18 says... Do all that you can to live in peace with everyone. The Apostle Paul is writing to Christians in Rome, and they've got all sorts of pressures and issues and fights and battles that they're going through. And he says, listen, as Christians, you can go to war over everything if you want to, but it's not wise. Instead, do everything that you can so that you can live in peace with everyone. For just a moment, can we set aside the transgender conversation and just say, Christians, Could you take that to heart, please? (laughs) 
Like so many Christians are constantly fighting and going to war over absolutely everything. And listen, there are things that are worth fighting over, but not everything is worth fighting over. Not everything is worth dying over. Instead, we dilute our influence. We dilute our righteous anger or our our truthfulness in the world when we make everything non-negotiable. It's always black and white. Everybody else is wrong. Paul says, do everything you can to live at peace with everyone. This is like one of the fundamental um, characteristics and qualities of what it means to be a Christian. We should be known as people that love and pursue peace with everyone else. Hear me now. Our entire gospel message is predicated on the idea that God sought peace. He brought peace to us. Now we are ambassadors of Christ. We bring peace to the rest of the world as well. And so I I could definitely understand a Christian saying, look, if I'm going to do all that I can to live at peace with everyone, then using their preferred pronouns is probably an easy way to keep peace with them. They might also say, uh, you know what, if I want to witness to trans people, if I want to help them to understand God loves them and Jesus died for them and he has a good plan for their life, if I want to do that, if I want to function as a missionary, so to speak, then I'm going to have to meet them where they're at. I can't demand that they come to me on my terms before we even have a conversation that it's going to get shut down immediately. And, And that's very true. If you talk to a transgender person and straight away you call them by their biological pronouns it's going to end the conversation. Like for, for so many transgender people, this is such an important issue. It's so triggering and touchy. And I don't mean that in a negative way at all. It is fundamental and essential to their identity that if you refuse to engage with them on this level, they're not going to engage with you on any other. Are you with me? That's just the nature of things. And maybe you say, yeah, who cares? That this is, this is the line and it's non-negotiable and I'm not going to do that. But there are others that say, but I really want them to know that God loves them. And I understand I've got to build a relationship if I ever hope to have those more spiritual conversations. And there are some of you and you're like, no, 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 no. Listen, this isn't missionary stuff. Okay. This is not the same as a Canadian learning Chinese so that they can go to China and be a missionary. That's not the same. I get that. But we actually have a very interesting example in Acts chapter number 17 of Paul doing precisely this. Same guy that wrote Romans 12, 18. I want you to consider what happens in Acts 17. Paul is a church planter. He's a missionary. He's traveling all around the Mediterranean region in the first century starting churches. And he ends up on one of his journeys in Greece, ancient Greece, right? He's there in the city of Athens. Athens, of course, was the center of the ancient Greek empire. It was their capital. It's the, the home of their religious worship. And even if you go to Athens today, you'll find like the Acropolis and the Parthenon and all these Greek statues to the gods and goddesses and all those different things. All of that was there. And in Acts 17, Paul is walking around the streets of Athens and he wanders into a pagan temple. And inside of the pagan temple, he sees all of these statues. Again, you can go see these today. Amber and I have been to see some of these statues uh, around that region. So there'll be a statue to the, the Greek god Zeus, and there'll be a, a statue to, you know, um, Diana, or there'll be a statue to uh, Mars or Ares. You know, there's just like all of these different gods and goddesses. But here's the thing. The Greeks believed that there were all these different gods, a pantheon of gods, and they were really afraid that they might have forgotten one when they were building all the statues. 
statues. There were so many gods that they're like, oh, what if we leave somebody out? And then that God shows up and he's mad because we gave them a statue, but not him a statue. So what they did is they built a statue, a generic statue inside of the temple. And on the inscription, it said, this is dedicated to the unknown God. Just in case there's another God out there that we haven't heard about yet. When he or she shows up, we can say, see, we were thinking about you. (laughs) It's true. This really happened. Okay. Stay with me. Paul's walking around and he sees that statue and he says, okay, there's something here. Acts 17, he preaches the longest recorded sermon in the entire book of Acts. It's the most lengthy speech or message he ever gave. And he's addressing these pagan Greeks. And this is what he does. Rather than coming to them and saying, you know what? All of these statues are false gods. They're all demons. You guys are all wrong. You need to crush them, break them, grind them into powder, get rid of them because Yahweh will tolerate no idolatry whatsoever. He could have done that. But you know what he actually did? Go read it for yourself. Acts 17, he starts off his message by saying, I noticed in your temple a statue to an unknown God. Today, I want to tell you about that unknown God. And he speaks about Yahweh. He speaks about Jesus in the context of this God they have not heard about. Now, I want you to understand theologically, doctrinally, this is a bad idea. This is incorrect. Yahweh is the only God. There are no other gods or goddesses. And so if Paul wants to be really precise, he would tell them, you got it all wrong. There's only one God, not many. He is Yahweh. Jesus is his son. He could have done that, but he didn't. Instead, he met them where they were and pointed them towards where God wanted them to go. Christians can do the same thing today. Hey, Christians should do the same thing today. If we, if we require people to come to our position before we try to point them towards Jesus, do you know what? We're getting the cart before the horse. We're, we're trying to get them to where they need to go before we help them to get to where they need to go. We have to meet them where they are. And so again, I can absolutely understand a Christian who has a missionary impulse towards a transgender person in their life. I'm not saying a missionary impulse to change them from being transgender. I'm saying a missionary impulse to help them discover salvation in Christ. I can understand them saying that and saying in order to ever have that conversation, then I've got to build a relationship, meet them where they're at. That's fair. Okay. Let me also say here for just a moment. Okay. If you have this perspective, if you have chosen to use preferred pronouns so that you can build a relationship and eventually talk to that person about Jesus, at some point you have to start talking to him about Jesus. Okay. Cause I, I, I just, I, I have this conversation a lot. There are many, many believers who are actually conflict averse and passive. Yeah. They, they just don't even want to engage on the issue. And what they do is they cloak their passivity in spiritual language. Oh, I'm just building relationships like Jesus or Paul would have done. And eventually I'm going to tell them about Jesus. Eventually it has to come. Okay. If it doesn't come, then you're lying. You're lying to yourself. You're lying to them. Your motives are not what you say that they are. So if you choose to use pronouns as a peacekeeping measure or as a missionary impulse, I think you can make that position scripturally valid, but you actually have to follow through. Quit playing games with your language. That's what you're mad at them for doing. Okay. There are other people, however, and they would quote a passage like Ephesians chapter number four, verse 25. 
again, good, godly, loving Christians. And they would, they would quote the apostle Paul, same guy we've been talking about all morning who says, therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor for we are all members of one or the same body. So they would argue that this verse, again, we're talking principles here. This verse would prohibit using trans pronouns because it is a form of speaking falsely. You are saying something about them that is biologically not true. Therefore, a Christian cannot engage in that. And again, this is a pretty compelling and straightforward case. Like, I think you can make this argument and be perfectly valid in it. But in the same way that I challenge those who are affirming of trans pronouns, let me challenge those of you guys who are not affirming of trans pronouns. How consistently are you actually applying this verse? Like if you say, no, this verse says we have to speak honestly. And so if we're going to speak honestly, then we need to tell trans people that they're not really trans. They were born biologically one or the other. And that's what they are. How consistently are you actually applying this command to be truthful? Like you feel compelled to tell your trans neighbor the truth. Are you also going to your neighbor and saying, you know what? You're not married. You shouldn't be sleeping with your girlfriend. Knock it off. That's sin. Stop doing it. It's no good. Are you doing that? My guess is probably not. Are you going to your Mormon neighbor and saying, you know, you don't worship the same God as us. It's a different God. You say it's great. It's not. Do you go out of your way to do that? Do you ever tell half truths or whole lies to your spouse or your kids? (laughs) Uh, Let's be real for a moment. Okay. Again, it's very easy for us as Christians to say, this is what the Bible says. But if we're not being consistent in our application of these more general principles, then it may not be as spiritual as we think it is. And so I I would encourage you, again, if this is where you land on a particular issue, I refuse to use trans pronouns, fine. But be consistent then if you require yourself to speak the truth. You better be speaking the truth otherwise, or you're a hypocrite. And the scriptures call that a very, very bad idea for a follower of Jesus. Okay. Now hear me. This is not um, theoretical or abstract for me. Like on a personal level, I have multiple trans people in my life. There are transgender people in this church. And I, again, want you to know that you are very welcome among this community. And I believe God loves you. Jesus died for you. He has the same good plan for your life that he has for my life and everybody else's as well. I have dear friends. I have family members that are trans identified. And so when we're talking about using pronouns or dead names or whatever the case may be, this is not hypothetical for me. I actually have to wrestle through this. Do I want to choose truth or do I want to choose relationship? Do I want to honor the person and their dignity or do I want to honor what I believe I see in the scripture? It's a very, very difficult spot to be in. So what I'm going to do, I'm going to share with you the position that I've landed on. I almost didn't do this. I was really, really hesitant because I don't want to give the impression that my way is the right way. It's not. In fact, what we read in the New Testament, this is something that many, many Christians get wrong. There are things that are clearly spelled out as sin. Then there are other things that um, could be sin one way or another. And actually different Christians would come to different conclusions about whether it's right, wrong, sin or not. So like a really easy example that's explicitly spelled out in the scripture is the, um, whether or not I'll use this one, whether or not you eat meat that's sacrificed to a foreign God. So like in the first century, a lot of meat, you know, if you had an animal, you would take it to a temple, you would kill it, sacrifice it to one 
one of the gods and then it would be eaten. Now, as a Christian, we don't believe in those other gods. And so if that animal is sacrificed to a false God, is it okay for a Christian to eat it? There's an entire chapter in the Bible that deals with this subject. Bible's wild. You guys don't even know what's in there, half of what's in there. Okay. And Paul, same guy we're talking about. He says, for some of you, that's going to be sin. And for some of you, it's not. Wait, what? No, wait. Uh, either it's sin or it's not, right? God, he, he told us, right? Wrong? Yes? No? What are you talking about? And what Paul says is, there are things in life that Christians have a responsibility to seek the spirit and the scripture over, and then to do what he tells them to do. And that means there are going to be some Christians that arrive at one conclusion that is sincerely held, it is scripture informed, spirit led, and there are going to be other Christians that arrive at a different conclusion based on those same criteria. Who's right? Paul says you both are. Why? Because the win, the, the, the commendable thing is in seeking God's wisdom in this issue or any issue. If you're genuinely pursuing what God says, why he says it, and you're trying to live it out out of love and respect for Christ, that's a win. Even if you disagree with other believers. And so there are Christians that may come to differing conclusions on this. Here's where I've kind of drawn the line. Okay. Uh, I have no issue using preferred names. It's e like, it's fine. Uh, again, it can be hard to remember when you've got the muscle memory of calling somebody one thing, but it's not an issue for me. Uh, I have modest reservations about pronoun usage. Uh, what I mean by that is I, I actually do think it is falsehood. I think it's untrue um, in, in the most technical sense for sure. It's also in a thing that like, I don't want to go to war over. I want to fight a million battles. I don't want to destroy relationships. I don't want to, I, I don't want to, uh, make a, a fight over this because there are other issues that I think, um, even in this conversation are more worthy of our time, our energy and our conversation. So what I try to do, because I've got this competing tension inside of me, I want to honor my loved ones who want me to use their preferred pronouns, but I also want to honor what I see in the scripture, which might prevent me from that. So I do my best not to use pronouns at all. Um, so I just use their name, first name all the time. So rather than he or him, I would just say, Hey, Chris said this. Could you go get Chris? Chris, what do you think about this? Chris, 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 all the time. So I don't have to say he and him and she and her and they and them and Zim and Zer and all the other ones that are going on today. I, I, I I'm trying to do my best here. Uh, can I just be real with you guys for a moment? It's exhausting um, because I love these people and I'm, I'm constantly like, oh, I don't want to hurt their feelings and I don't want to violate my conscience. I'm caught in the, And sometimes I mess it up. Sometimes I mess it up. Sometimes I use the wrong pronouns. Uh, sometimes I forget to use their name instead. And I, I'm not going to get it perfectly. You're not going to get it perfectly. What I would encourage you to do is this. Seek the spirit. Seek the word. Arrive at your conclusion have it as a sincerely held and then consistently acted out belief and then do it all with love. Here's the unfortunate thing. No matter what you choose on this, somebody is going to demonize you. This is a no win situation. Yeah, I, I really do kind of hate it. Okay. Because if you choose to use preferred pronouns, there's going to be a massive segment of the Christian world that says you're a compromiser. You're a liberal. You're not serious about the scripture. You're not a real believer. They may write you off. You may lose relationships, churches, you know, might, uh, I mean, it's just, it gets wild. And if you choose to take a strong stand and say, no, I refuse. I'm going to call you by your biological sex. That is what it is. It's what my faith requires me to do. Then you are going to be labeled as a bigot. You are going to be labeled as 
as a difficult person. It could cost you your job. It could cost you promotions, space at school. I mean, it's just, it is what it is, guys. This is the reality that we live in. And it, Jesus never promised us that the world was going to be easy. In fact, he promised us it was going to be incredibly difficult. I don't even have time to go into all this. One of the biggest controversies in the first couple centuries of the church is that in order to participate in public life in ancient Rome, you had to, you had to offer sacrifices to the Roman gods. It was non-negotiable. Like if you wanted to serve in the military, if you want to serve in government, if you wanted to hold certain businesses, you had to sacrifice to the gods, but Christians refused to do that. And so what happened? They got marginalized. They weren't allowed to buy and sell. They couldn't participate in community life. They were ostracized. That's just the nature of our faith sometimes, where if you, if you are going to take a stand, not everybody's going to like the stand that you take one way or another. So rather than becoming a warrior or a martyr, let's try to do what the spirit calls us to do. And let's do it as lovingly as we possibly can, whatever that might look like. Okay, next question that I got. I'm not going to spend as much time on these other questions, I promise you, okay? Um, The second question I received was actually from um, one of our team leaders in the church. And um, they said, you know, how should intersex people impact our understanding of God's uh, design and gender? How should intersex people affect our conversations and thoughts uh, around gender identity? Now, if you don't know, uh, intersex is an umbrella term that describes people who have atypical features of their biological sex. Now, you might remember from an earlier message, there are basically four things that determine your biological sex. So the first is the presence or absence of a Y chromosome. The second is your internal reproductive anatomy. The third is your external genitalia. And the fourth is the endocrine system, which gives us our secondary sex characteristics. So like beards and men and breasts and women. Okay. Those are the four things that identify you biologically as male or female. Uh, Intersex people have some atypical feature of one, some, or all of those qualities. Okay. It's a big, broad umbrella term and intersex people. They're real. They exist. It's not like a made up or super, super rare thing They they are around. Uh, the most common statistic that's used, particularly in this conversation, man, you'll hear it all the time. If you do any reading, watching, whatever, um, is that 1.7% of the population is estimated to have an intersex condition which is like a massive number, right? Like th- what, what's often said is, see, you guys are talking about how God created a gender binary, male and female, but 2% of the people that God created don't even fit the gender binary of male or female. You don't even know what you're talking about. That's the way that it's often presented. But here's the thing, that 1.7% number is massively misleading, massively misleading. See, when you really dig in, what you find out is that of the roughly 2% of people that are classified as having an intersex or disorder of sex development condition, 88% of those people qualify as intersex because they have one mutation on one specific gene, which gives them a condition known as late onset congenital adrenal hyperplasia. I had to practice saying that a few times because I'm not a doctor. I just play one on stage. And so anyway, um, late onset congenital adrenal hyperplasia. Now, 88% of intersex people, they are intersex because of this condition. So what does that mean? Well, it must must mean that when the baby came out, it had a penis and a vagina, right? Because that's what intersex is. It it must mean that once they went through puberty, it turns out that they had breasts and a beard because that's what intersex means, right? No. 
this, this particular condition, the primary symptom of having this condition in men is an early thinning scalp. So like male pattern, pattern baldness in your 20s. And in women, the most common symptom of having this, com- the, the biggest intersex uh, condition of all is having more body hair than typical women do. 88% of everybody that's claimed to have an intersex condition is intersex because they have an abnormal amount of body hair. That's true. Like at some point we have to start to say, wait, 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 wait. When we say intersex, like what are we talking about genuinely here, right? Like are these people that have more or less body hair? Is that really a good analogy or parallel to people who are suffering from gender dysphoria? Like I'm not so sure that those two things are really the same. And it goes on and on and on, guys. Like as we look at kind of the the major things that would qualify somebody as intersex, what we find out is that in the vast majority of cases, there is no ambiguity about what their sex really is. They might have one atypical feature, but all the others are aligned and very clear and very obvious. In fact, when you get right down to it, 99.98% of all people that are born have no ambiguity about their biological sex. Now, what that means is that 0.02% of every baby that's born or of all the babies that are born does have some atypical features about their biology. And this is almost always related to their genitalia. So the baby is born and the doctor looks down and he says, oh my goodness, it has both parts down there or it has half parts or it has malformed parts. And it's not immediately clear whether this is actually a male or this is actually a female. 0.02% of people are intersex in the way at least that we would most, uh, most often think about it. And in those cases, a doctor has to assign sex to the baby, has to say, it's not immediately apparent. So I'm going to mark male because this, the features seem most likely male or female because they see most female or whatever. And over time, we can do genetic testing to figure out what do the chromosomes say. We can look at the secondary sex characteristics that might develop later on. Um, We can look at these other features, their internal anatomy. We can figure all of that stuff out. For now, we're simply going to assign a sex and later it can be adjusted if needed. Now, gender theorists have taken that very rare and real situation and they've expanded it and said, everybody just has a sex assigned at birth. Like the doctor gave you male, but he didn't know because he didn't check your insides and he didn't look at your chromosomes. He just looked and said, oh, he's got a penis. He's definitely a boy. And so they stretch this out in a way that unfortunately it makes the intersex reality a, a football to be kicked back and forth in a debate. And, and, and if you do some reading um, from intersex people, they're kind of like, hey, guys, we'd rather not be used by either one of you. OK, we're real people struggling with real issues. Um, we've had to battle things that most of you guys could never comprehend. And we really don't like being used by either side of the debate. In fact, uh, the Intersex Society of North America has this to say on their website. They say intersex people are perfectly comfortable adopting either a male or female gender identity and are not seeking a genderless society or to label themselves as a member of a third gender class. So they're kind of like, hey, guys, we're our own thing. So please, like, we, we don't validate or invalidate transgender people. 
That, that's not what or who we are. We're, we're something else. This is an issue with our biology, all right? And, and listen, from a Christian perspective, intersex people, just like transgender people and cisgender people and homosexual people and heterosexual people and old people and young people and on and on it goes, like all people, intersex people are image bearers. Yes. They're made in the image of God. They're fully human. There's nothing less about them. Unfortunately, they were born with some sort of deformity within their physical self in the same way that babies are born with a cleft palate or some other issue. That's a result of the fallen world that we live in, okay? That, that doesn't mean that their presence or existence validates or invalidates any other particular issue. So as Christians, when we discover that there are intersex people around us and there are like 20, between 20 and 30,000 people in Calgary that were born and it wasn't immediately obvious whether or not they were male or female. So they're out there. There's every possibility, at least that they live in your neighborhood. They could be in our church. And I just want you guys to know, again, God loves you. You're not a mistake. He has a good plan for your life. You're fully welcome here. If you have an intersex condition or if you suffer from gender dysphoria or any of these things that we've been talking about, I want you to know that I'm glad you're here. You belong. I want to get to know you. I want to hear your story. I want to hug your neck. I want to pray with you. I want you to know that God really does have a good plan for you. All right. So how do intersex people affect the way that we should think about transgender people? Let's just think about intersex people. And then we can think about transgender people uh, as their own thing. Okay. All right. Last, um, Oh, no, second to last question. Sorry. All right, we're going to start wrapping it up here. Uh, this is a, a different question that came in. Some of you are really going to resonate with this, okay? Uh, the question is this. I don't understand. It starts with a statement, by the way. I don't understand the multitude of terms that people identify with today. Non-binary, they, them. The question is, how should we think about people who are not just transgender, but they are genderqueer? Okay? And, and listen, there, there are more and more terms every single week uh, on the subject of gender identity. They pop into existence, uh, honestly, faster than anybody's able to keep up. Currently, there are 107 recognized different gender identities. So like in the space of 30 or so years, maybe 40, we've gone from two and only two to 100 plus and ever more. In fact, the current understanding of gender ideology, uh, gender identity theory, I should say, is that gender is actually infinite, that there are as many gender identities as there are people on the planet. So none of us would actually have the same gender identity. It would all be expressed uniquely. So if there are eight or nine billion people on the planet, there are technically eight or nine billion different gender identities. Some of the terms that you might come across, like come to our youth group, man, or you know, talk to your kids and have some of their friends over. Uh, some of the terms that you, you'll hear uh, are non-binary. Non-binary is kind of a catch-all phrase that means neither male or female, right? I'm non-binary, neither one of those things. Uh, the, another one is gender void or odd gender. That means I have no gender. Um, interesting. I, I, I don't know how that happens. I don't. Um, cause by saying I don't have a gender, that's my gender identity. There is a gender identity. I don't know. Um, pan gender that is experiencing all genders at the same time. Gender fluid means experiencing different genders at different times. So like today or this morning, maybe even I feel more masculine. I feel male this evening. I feel more feminine. I feel like a, a, a woman on and on the list goes. Okay. And, and hear me now for the majority of this sermon series, I've been 
talking about the most basic and vanilla forms of transgenderism. Some of you guys are really plugged in in this circle for one reason or another. And you're like, yeah, he's only talking about like the old stuff, the basic stuff. We haven't even talked about a lot of that in years. I get it. Okay. I'm trying to help people take some baby steps. Okay. If you don't understand basic transgenderism, you're never going to wrap your brain around somebody who claims to be sparkle gendered. Okay. Which is a very real thing. There are people who claim to be sparkle gendered. Um, In fact, what I think this maybe illustrates is the fact that gender has almost become a meaningless word. And and this is not something that should just concern those of us that believe in a gender binary. I actually think it should concern on some level people who might believe in transgenderism or experience transgenderism. Because what happens is when we like, um, I, I read an interview with somebody who says they are sparkle gendered. Okay. And in the interview, they were like, what does that, what's that experience like? And they said, you know, on the inside, I feel very sparkly. I feel very like light and glittery and I just feel tingly. And it's like, at some point, we're, we're not even talking about gender anymore. We're talking about personality or we're talking about affinity. Like, and, and I mean, like no disrespect, please. I, I don't mean this disrespectful at all. What's the difference between sparkle gender and emo? Like if we... Like if we start comparing some of those things, it's like, yeah, a lot of the same, it's, it, they start to overlap in a way that they haven't in the past. And so even those that are wrestling with gender dysphoria, truly experiencing transgender um, desires or reality, like you guys might be a little concerned as well by the fact that gender has gone so far afield that it has removed the weight of what you're battling and experiencing. And what I think it means is it's undercutting any validity to what you're saying because the extreme edges of gender theory have taken it so far afield. Now, here's what's unfortunate. Those extreme edges are becoming the norm now. So you're hearing more of that extreme stuff, even in schools or in DEI at workplaces and things like that. And again, I'm not saying never, and this is all wrong and all that. That's not my point. My point is it just keeps going further and further and further and further. And I wonder if at some point the world is not just going to say, nope, we're done. It's too much. And that will leave behind those of you who genuinely experience gender dysphoria. And I don't want that for you. So um, how do we think about people that are, are gender queer? We think about them as people who are trying to figure out their identity. You know, there are, there's really not that much difference between somebody who finds their identity in their sparkle gender and somebody who finds their identity in the fast cars they drive or the job that they hold or whatever. We're looking at something other than our created nature and our relationship to our creator to give us our sense of self. And all of it is contrary to God's design. All of it is going to leave us unsatisfied with who we are because our foundation our grounding is really supposed to be in the fact that we are beloved creatures of God who are intended to have a relationship with him. Okay. Uh, last, last kind of question. And I got to wrap it up here. Uh, would it ever be appropriate for a Christian experiencing gender dysphoria to transition? 
Would it ever be appropriate if you have gender dysphoria and you're thinking like about, you know, moving to the opposite gender or a different gender, is that ever appropriate? Well, before we answer that question, okay, we should probably define the word transition, okay? The, the word transition, gender transitioning, is the process of bringing your gender expression in line with your gender identity. So the way that you present yourself and live in the world is in line with what you feel on the inside. That is transition. And there are different types of transition. Generally speaking, there are three kind of stages. Um, so the first is social transitioning. Uh, this is where you choose a different name. You use cross-gender or different gendered pronouns. You might dress in a way that um, identifies you with a different sex or, or a different gender. Uh, you use cosmetics, whether it's makeup or, you know, something binding your chest is a form of social transitioning. It's a way of presenting as a different gender that is mostly reversible. Um, it's not all completely reversible. If you bind your chest for long enough, you will do irreversible damage to your breasts. That's just the nature of things. If you, um, require yourself to be called something different for long enough, your brain will adopt that identity and it will become very difficult to change the identity either back or even into something else. And so anyway, it's mostly reversible. Then we get into hormonal transition. This is a subject of great controversy, but um, this is essentially taking cross-sex hormones. So if you're a female, taking testosterone. If you are a, a male, then taking estrogen so that you can kind of produce some of those secondary sex characteristics that men and women tend to have. This is also where puberty blockers come into the conversation. So if a kid is young, they haven't gone through puberty yet, they identify with a different sex or gender, and they, they believe that they are going to surgically transition later in their life, then we can prevent them from developing the unwanted secondary sex characteristics. So like if they don't have to go through a mastectomy, that would be good. So we'll give them puberty blockers and we assume that that's safe and okay. Lots of controversy about that. Uh, and then we get to surgical transitioning. Okay. Uh, that's like top and bottom surgery. Uh, there are different ways you can make yourself more masculine and feminine. I honestly did not know this until I was doing more reading. Um, like for instance, if you are a trans woman, you can go and have a doctor shave down your vocal cords so that your voice rises in pitch and you sound more feminine. Like there are all sorts of uh, surgical procedures and of course those are fairly permanent, all right? Now I told you a moment ago, there are three stages. I really think stages is the correct word for um, this, this transitioning idea. And that's because when we look at research, what we discover is that a significant portion in all studies and a majority in some studies that if you enter one form of transitioning, you will eventually enter into the next form, right? And the next. And so if you socially transition, there is a significant portion of those people that will move to hormonal and then on to surgical. I'm not saying that like everybody who uh, uses cross pronouns is going to like have bottom surgery. That's not the point. What I'm saying is there definitely seems to be some sort of progression here. So what about Christians? Like, is it ever appropriate? Um, uh, my, my very short answer is probably not, though, um, without really kind of even getting into all of that, because I would have, you know, some, some diff like, could you present to me some scenario or situation that I've never thought of in which I might say, well, yeah, I guess under those, I, yes, I can't say no, because I don't know every circumstance and situation. What I would say is this, if you are a Christian who experiences gender dysphoria, the message that you're going to receive everywhere in the world around you is that transitioning is your only option. 
that the only thing that's going to relieve the distress that you feel is to start this transitioning process. So you'll listen to influencers on TikTok and they'll talk about how transitioning was the only thing that helped them. And the implication there is that it's going to be the only thing that helps you, right? Um, you'll, you'll hear from medical doctors and these medical doctors will say it's completely safe. It's all reversible, no harm. You can, you can do it and not worry about it. You can always move backwards if you want to. You'll hear that transitioning is the only way to alleviate the increased risk that you, you face as a gender dysphoric person, uh, for suicide, self-harm, mental, uh, disorders of all kinds that basically transitioning is the only path forward. But here's the truth. The truth is transitioning does help some people. It makes some of them feel better about their gender dysphoria. Then some people basically experience no change in their overall level of internal distress. And some people actually feel worse after they transition, whether it's social, surgical, or hormonal. And the problem is nobody knows which one of those three you're going to be until you go through with it. But very quickly, we start getting into semi-permanent or even permanent changes. So what happens if you start taking testosterone and then you decide you actually identify with your biological sex or something else and you no longer want to be masculine? You go on testosterone for just a few months and your body will change in ways that can never be undone. Your jaw will widen. You will grow facial hair. You will grow bigger, denser bones and more muscles. And if you ever decide that you don't want that after all, then you're going to be in trouble because it's very, uh, it's nearly impossible to undo it. And so my concern is this, when we tell people that their only path forward is to transition, we're actually, we're, we're ignoring some other real options and helps that are available to absolutely every person. Um, so like if you're a Christian, you have the Holy spirit dwelling inside of you. I'm not saying that the Holy spirit's going to zap you and relieve all of your, you know, gender dysphoria and you're no longer going to be transgender. That's not it at all. But what I'm saying is the Holy spirit works in all people and in all circumstances to help us shape how we see and how we go through life with whatever uh, difficulties and circumstances we might find ourselves in. You have the truth of the scripture. You have a community of people that love you and want to be there for you. You, you, before you ever think about transition, Honestly, you should talk to a good counselor and, and let them help you work through some of these things so that at least you know you've tried other routes before you went through the more um, direct and permanent ones. If you, by the way, for anybody, if you need a recommendation for a good Christian counselor in the city, I have several. I would love to point you towards them, okay? Um, my, my hope for you is that you would recognize that despite the messaging that you're getting from media and social media all around you, transitioning is not the only option. I'm not telling you not to. I'm not saying that you never would, should, could, any of that. I'm just saying it's not the only one. And so at least let some other people speak into what you might be experiencing because you might find some help in unexpected places. Okay, I got to wrap up. I'm going to leave you with one final verse. This is Proverbs chapter number two, verses six and seven. This applies to everybody in every circumstance. The scripture says, it is the Lord that gives wisdom. Yeah. 
From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. In the end, as Christians, we want to be informed by the truth of scripture. We want to be informed by the the leading of the Holy Spirit. We want to have wisdom. We want to have a, a grace and truth posture like we talked about several weeks ago. And trust that as we try to live like Christ in the world, we can trust God to give us the wisdom we need to handle these sticky situations. Beyond gender issues, man, I'm in sticky situations all the time, Relationally speaking, I need wisdom and God promises he'll give it to us if we will simply ask. Father, I'm praying today that you would just enlighten our minds with your word, with your spirit, with your wisdom. Help us to see people the way that you do. Help us to love them the way that you do. Help us, God, to, to really um, take, take the, the posture of Jesus, this grace and truth position, and Lord, hold to it faithfully in all circumstances. And I'm praying for those that are struggling today, either because of this issue or other others in their life. Would you draw them close? Would you love them well, God? Would you convince them that you haven't forgotten or abandoned them, but that God, you are near and dear to them and they are near and dear to you. So God speak to us today and we'll do our best to listen and be obedient in Jesus name. Amen. Okay. Quickly, two resources I give you each week. First one is a big book. It's a textbook. So if you're real smart, you're going to want to read Humanity uh, by John Hammett and Katie McCoy. And then uh, God and the Transgender Debate by Andrew Walker's a little more devotional, but there's a lot of good stuff in there too. Okay. All right. Thanks for being here.